This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Episode 127 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, we discuss Richard Price's 2020 series, The Outsider. So as we discussed last week, uh, we are the doppelgangers. Um, (laughs) You know, I don't know if we're supposed to tell you that or not, but we are. And we're here to create some mischief. Yeah, I'm the thing that is calling itself Luke. Uh, And you know, it's funny because like, I wanted to I wanted to go with that as my my uh, identity for this episode but the doppelganger is a pretty nasty piece of work in this in this show yeah it's not really something to have fun with right like i was trying to find an image that we could use with our post that would be kind of like fun and enticing for people to come check out the show and i you know i'm enjoying the show and and the book in general and uh it's kind of hard to be like oh yeah get excited for this awful gruesome murder (laughs) yeah uh, or the, you know, I was, uh, people were asking me how the show's going. Like, you know, do I recommend it? And I'm like, yes, but <laughs> like, I have to, I feel like I always have to, uh, qualify my recommendation of, but it's super violent and there's a child murdered at the start and it's really dark. And if you don't like that, I maybe don't listen to me recommend this thing. Do you ever feel that way? Like, yeah, it's not it, like something like it where you can like show the creature and there's something fun and, and exciting about it. Even though it kills children, it's like too real for that, you know? Yeah, this is like, I mean, I don't know. I, I told you in the last episode that this was my uh, scariest Stephen King book I think I've been reading so far. I haven't finished it yet, so we'll see how it how it plays out. But um, part of it is like the way it's written. Part of it is the way it's, uh, it's kind of got a true crime feel. And then part of it is just like my own fears and like how it's hitting me with the doppelganger stuff. And um, whatever, for whatever reason, it's very effective. And I'm happy to report <laughs> that the show is also doing that. Like it's, you know, in a different way, in a way that, you know, visual medium can do it. Uh, it is very creepy. I made the comment to my girlfriend. I was like, I was like, you're ever watching something by yourself and then realize you're watching something by yourself, like in a house by yourself. <laughs> you look over and see a man in a hoodie in the corner and yeah. flip, out, flip the fuck out and then realize it's actually just like a coat on a hanger or something. Yeah, I'm not one to get like kind of too, too worked up for horror stuff either. But it's just funny when like you're watching something and you're like. These people are alone in their house right now. They're idiots. I can't believe it. There's somebody on the loose. And then you're like, wait, I'm also by myself right now. Or are you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so I have a few uh, paragraphs. Well, basically a paragraph for each episode that I'm going to read. Um, we've covered the first five episodes. And next week, we're going we're gonna to cover the second half of the novel and the second half of the show. So we'll have a lot of stuff to talk about, I'm sure. Right. And you're going you're gonna to watch the show first, and I'm going to read the book first. Right. And then both of us will do both and we'll kind of talk about our experiences doing that. So uh, here, before we get into that, we're going to give some, sort of our general thoughts a little more maybe. And then we'll talk about yep. the filmmaker and then we will move into spoilers and kind of just get into the episodes themselves. Yeah, man, I'm ready. Are, uh, uh, you want to hear some general thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I want to hear how, how are you feeling about the, the overall sense of dread and how how is the show building? Does it live up to the book, do you think so far? 
Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, yes, I think so. I think it does. I, I think this this is an adaptation that is shining um, through the medium that it is in. You know, like it knows it knows what it's doing there. And shine on the uh, yeah the um, the overall sense of dread that you you just said. I think is a really good description for this for this show it does remind me of true detective season one a little bit i can see the comparisons it isn't an entirely one-to-one kind of thing like i can see some people maybe hearing that and then being like well this isn't that um and in fact it's a lot more sort of supernatural from from episode like two or three on (laughs) you really Mm -hmm. get into it and you're like okay this is definitely supernatural whereas true detective was always like skirting that line of like what is actually happening here? Is it is there actually something going on, or is this just like him losing his mind or something? Um, so there's, it's a little different in that sense. But as far as like tonally, I think it is kind of in keeping with that. Um, and I love sort of the understated horror of a lot of this stuff. Um, I think they're really letting their actors shine um, to, in a sort of an understated way, usually demonstrate the effect all of this is having on them uh, in particular uh, Ben Mendelsohn as Ralph um, I think he's doing a lot of subtle work that I really like um, as evidenced by like the opening scene he comes to see the, the the murdered child at the beginning and I loved it he he asked the other guy uh, they, they said something about like you know bite marks all over the body and he says animal and the guy says no and then he doesn't say anything he just like looks down and then we get the title card come in and like just the way he just looked down, just showing like how it was just hitting him like right in the gut, you know? Right. Yeah. So good. I don't know. I, I'm liking a lot of the stuff with Jason Bateman, um, you know, which we'll, we'll get into uh, his his early work is just like so good in this show. Um, and I was really impressed when I saw that he had a directorial credit at the end of episode one. Um, I wasn't sure um, if he directed any other episodes, but um, I know you have some more information about that. Yeah, I mean, I didn't want to look ahead to see if he directed any other episodes. Oh, but like later, I, yeah, yeah. Of later the five episodes. we've seen? Of the, of the five we've seen, he hasn't. He just directed the first just two. episode one? Oh, he did, the, he did both. Two. Okay, okay yeah. I didn't know that. So, which is interesting because like, it's sort of his um, biggest uh, time on the show, <laughs> kind of, I would say, was when he was yeah. directing. I, you know what? I th- I say we just get into spoilers now, man. I, I, yeah. Like, we did our non-spoiler thoughts last week um, on the book, and mostly it's the same kind of thing. Um, in general, if you haven't, if you don't know the story at all and you're curious, like, whether or not you should watch the show, like, if you like horror and you like Stephen King, you should absolutely be watching this show. We're now going to talk about it in ways that spoil things. <laughs> because, it, you know, this this is a spoiler that occurs early. But, yeah, um, let's let's get into it. I would just say generally, just in case you didn't want the spoilers, I, I am enjoying the show. I think that it's doing a great job of the dread that you were talking about. I think that um, it may have improved uh, s- s- some of the characters. I think I think specifically Ralph is a little bit deeper of a character because of some right. changes that they made. Um, and But overall, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. I don't think we can fully like say, like oh, I highly recommend this because we haven't finished it. We've only seen True. the first five episodes, and so... Just take that with a grain of salt. And like Luke said, if you're into Stephen King and horror, specifically like true crime sort of investigative stories, like this is definitely for you. But with that, let's let's fully spoil everything. So what I was trying to say there was he, you know, the shooting basically yeah. that happens in episode two. Um, he directed that scene, which is kind of cool to think like he was, you know, that involved in those two episodes that were pivotal with him as the yeah. one of the main characters as well. 
Well, when his character dies. Yeah, I mean, we see a little bit of him, I think, in like some flashback stuff. But for the most part, yeah, and we see him in like security cameras and stuff. But for the most part, like that's the end of Jason Bateman in the show. So um, it's worth, I think, just looking at those first two episodes. And I think he put in some great work. I I was I am always curious about the process when I see that like an actor directed themselves. Right. Like, you know, like that's that's a good performance. Me. Well done, you know. Like, I'm always curious, like how that process goes. But he nailed it, man. I thought his performance is great because he he on one hand is the likable Jason Bateman that we know and love from lots of other shows, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he's maybe not cracking as many jokes, but he seems like he's the kind of guy who could. Um, he seems like a warm father, but he's just in a different situation. No, yeah, you know, like yeah, he's, some- you could see him being like that sort of wisecracking guy, but he's not in that kind of situation right now. Right, so. right, not right now. Um, but then. He also has like a subtle note to that performance where he's, he, I want, I feel like he wants you to question early on, could he actually be guilty? So he he like puts just a little bit of, a, of that on there too, because if he went way too likable, I think there would be no mystery to that, and you would know for a fact it wasn't him. Right, and I think um, that has something to do with how the book is set up as well, because I yeah. think at first we're like, this guy's su- he's completely guilty, and then we slowly get clues that he's not guilty, he's not guilty, he's not guilty, and then we're like, wait, maybe he isn't guilty. Yeah. Um, and so that, I feel like that's his way of kind of being like act guilty and not guilty at the same time. And then the doppelganger version of Jason Bateman is scary as hell. Like he has yeah. this dead stare, this menace to him. Um, I'm thinking of like particular the scene where the child recounts seeing him walk out of the forest with the blood and he just stares at the kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh my God. Like that's that's scary shit. And like that's what again a very understated performance he's not doing a lot or at least to me like he's not doing a lot of like very emotive stuff but what little bit he's doing is so effective and then just the way the blood looks and everything part of that i think is a big part of why it looks so scary yeah i think he he does such good work in ozark that it's like i think i think that was really a turning point for him i'm sure that people i'm sure he had dramatic roles before that i can't think of any right now but um that was like people were like oh shit like jason bateman is to be taken seriously in dramatic roles and like i think he's just continuing that here and showing like his interest in in directing which kind of gets me into the you want to talk about the filmmaker and the fact that that jason bateman did direct some of these episodes so i do think this show if i had to like nail a feeling that really there's like i guess there's a couple but like one of the primary ones that this show nails is that feeling that we were talking about like when you are alone in a room and you feel like there's someone in there with you and then you see a shape. And I feel like this is a universal experience, right? Like you see something in your room and you think, is that a person? Or maybe you wake up and for a second, your mind takes something and turns it into an actual person. And then you have to stare at it for a while before you realize that it's not. And you have to like, like kind of reverts back to how it originally looked. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think this is a phenomenon leads to a lot of the like, um, ghost sightings you get a lot right like because there are times where i wake up and like i see a fucking face and i have to stare at it and wait and then it like transforms back into what it actually is and Mm -hmm. it's because our brains take like limited information and try and cobble together something and if it's a threat it wants us to know right so it's like hypersensitive to that so that feeling you get that deep terror when you see that and you feel kind of paralyzed for a second like that's what this show does really well Mm-hmm. Um, and this guy in the hood, at first I was worried was not going to like really be able to capture that feeling. But as soon as we started getting, because the first time we see him, 
yeah, the first time you see him, he's like, okay, is that really that scary? It's broad daylight. It's like a creepy mask, seemingly, yeah. and you're like, oh man, this is like. But like the more I see him, the creepier and creepier he's getting, and then all the stuff with the like the sort of um, is it a dream or isn't it a dream with the daughter, um, and then eventually with uh, Ralph's wife, like a lot of that stuff is just like ramping up. Um, I think how how frightening this this creature guy is, um, and. Yeah, that's the feeling I think that this show really nails. And an overall sense that, and I think this is essential for like a truly horrifying show, anything could happen. Like it, no one is safe. The most horrific crime committed against anyone on screen could happen at any time. When the baby gets maybe taken out of the thing and it, there's a scare about the baby, I fully believe that that fucking creature could yeah. be eating a baby or something in the next scene. Like that's how dark this show is. And when you feel like nothing is safe, I think it really puts you on edge of like, what am I about to see? You know, and, and that's that's frightening stuff. So, you know, big props to them, because I think that can be a hard thing to achieve in, in, in horror. And um, the show's nailing it. I, so Jason Bateman kind of kind of said that that's why he was drawn to the project as well. Is that he said, like, in, in a feature thing I was watching, he was talking about how it was more The Shining than it is like certain other horror um, books that, that Stephen King has written. It's more like the the sense of dread, like the the tension that's building. It's not like necessarily the creatures and all that other stuff. So he was drawn to it for that reason. I wonder if he's if he's uh, thinking more of the movie of The Shining, but I don't know. I'd be curious to know. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I actually don't know. Yeah, because the movie is, I think, the more understated version of the horror elements, right? Like because. Uh, mm-hmm. In the in well anyway I don't want to get into the Shining we have episodes <laughs> on the Shining go listen to those <laughs> yeah yeah I mean I I can see what he what he what he means and and I I do think that this is like a product of this this sort of show is definitely a product of this like golden age of television that we're living in now where yeah it's so it's very cinematic it's very you know uh, it's subtle in its approach it takes its time it lets you understand the characters and the world um, and. Yeah, I think that I think anybody would be attracted to to this as like a, you know, Stephen King sort of it, it's it's almost unique as a Stephen King story as well, because it's like it doesn't even feel like it's a Stephen King story for a pretty long time in the show less so. But in the book, it takes it takes a long time before you're like, oh, this is supernatural. It could have yeah. just played out as as like another, you know, some I think there are a few, but they could have played out as just like a street investigative story and finding this like horrible serial killer or whatever is going around doing this stuff and it, it, maybe it seems supernatural but then you know he it, because it's Stephen King I think he did want to lean into the sort of person in two places at once thing absolutely um and just circle back around to that word you used early oppressive um I think that's a key difference between this and other horror I see too in that much like true detective and I think maybe that's why it's getting likened to that it doesn't let you escape really from that feeling um whereas a lot of horror you have these moments of like okay now i'm safe right now nothing scary is happening you know this is a this is like sort of a fun scene or whatever and then maybe there's a surprise coming maybe there's a jump scare maybe there's a oh my god actually this is really dark kind of moment coming but for the most part you can kind of relax um and maybe just be a little bit on guard this show is like, no, every scene you're getting is just like piling on the weight of everything, right? And it's, it feels like, I, I mean, I'm sure there is some pressure being let off here and there, but for the most part, it just is building on itself and, and the weight just feels kind of inescapable. 
um, and that dread. So it's a different, I don't know, it's just a different vibe. And it's one that I happen to really enjoy in my horror because I find that to sit with me longer after I'm done watching it. Yeah. I mean, like you said, uh, like something like it doesn't really stick with me. Um, something like this is something that you're actively thinking about, um, you know, after after it's ended, after the show's ended or I finished the book or whatever. I, d- I want to talk about uh, another show that's comparable to this, I think, in, in really different ways. But the reason I'm drawing the parallel is because Richard Price, the showrunner on this sh- on The Outsider, also was the showrunner on the show called The Night Of. And it was another HBO miniseries. Did you see this? I did see that. Yeah, I enjoyed yeah. that. I enjoyed that show. I did not know that that was the same guy. Like, I'm genuinely shocked, but also it makes sense because... Uh, I thought that show was very well made. It was an HBO series, and here we are in another well made HBO series that has yeah some tonal similarities. Yeah, he was he was a co creator on that, and and uh, I I think like in terms of just like feeling like there's like no sense of relief. That was a show that I can remember when I was watching. I was just like, oh man, there's no. Um, it was just like oppressive. Like you just felt mm-hmm. you felt the emotion that was, and and that one it was more of just like the sort of unjust. Um, did he or did he not do this thing? And like, is there is there sort of like racist uh, profiling going on and that kind of thing? But it right. was just sort of like this investigation where it was just like oppressive the whole time. You're just like, you couldn't escape it. There was no, there weren't really light moments. And I, yeah, I would compare that. Um, That's a really cool connection to this because yeah, because that was he or wasn't he guilty question throughout that show. Now it's been a while since I've seen it, but I remember there being times where I was like convinced one way or another, and. Um, there was a lot going on with like the performance in these flashback scenes where like sometimes he'd feel like he was super innocent, but then there are other times where you're like, oh God, he seems really guilty. Um, and, and you'd be wondering like, is he fooling me? Right. And right. Just, he's fooling everyone else or, or, or what, you know, I don't know. Yeah. So I want to tell you more about Richard Price really quickly, just okay. because I yeah. think there's, there's some other things to dig into here that, that uh, you're going to be surprised about. So uh, Richard Price is an American novelist first Ooh. and screenwriter known for known for the books the wanderers clockers and lush life i think i've heard of the wanderers price's novels explore late 20th century urban america in a gritty realistic manner that has brought him some considerable literary acclaim several of his novels are set in a fictional fictional northern new jersey city called dempsey in addition to writing literature he writes for television including the wire the night of and the deuce um now I know I know he was a creator on the night of, and I believe on the wire and the deuce, which are also both HBO projects. He um, was just a writer for certain episodes. Hmm. I've never seen the deuce, but I am a huge fan of the wire. Um, yeah. So it's cool to hear that he's on that. Another like super crime, you know, it's all about crime kind of show. So it's interesting that he's got all this like true crime background, right? Or maybe not even true crime, but just like crime fiction background. And I think that is a perfect perfect fit for this for this subject matter. Yeah, he. It, I just found it so fascinating that he was a. I, so I went looking into it that he was a um, a writer first, and then kind of a screen like a novelist before before getting into screenplays. Um, a lot of his stuff, I was looking through it that he that he wrote has been adapted, which you know it's always interesting to me because oh, yeah. of the podcast here. Uh, and fairly soon after, like he wrote The Wanderers in 1974 and it was adapted in 1978. And I, all of the stuff he was also a writer on, I believe, like a lot of the movies that he, were adapted, he wrote the screenplay for. So, you know, I, cool. I think that's a luxury that not every writer gets to do. But I think that was also his foot and that was his foot in the door into like Hollywood. And then he actually wrote the screenplay for The Color of Money, which Martin Scorsese directed. Oh, OK. I haven't seen that one. 
it's a uh, Tom Cruise, uh, which it, I mean, that's that's crazy to write a you know write a story that would be that would be uh, directed by Martin Scorsese's Wild. Uh, wow. So yeah, he's had a he's had a crazy career. He's you know a showrunner now. Yeah, he knows what he's doing, man. I am a I mean I am a sucker for a good title sequence, and to me this is a great one. I absolutely yeah. love the way it just like oozes onto screen. Yeah. Um. It it's so thematically fitting. Yeah. I kept I just kept thinking about how they achieved that and like how it's sort of like a like a a fade in with this sort of effect over top of it. Um. It's really cool. I like it too. And I and I also yeah. like that like you randomly see it coming and then also don't see it coming. So it's always and you're like oh there's the title sequence. It's always nice. I'm really into like openers and enders as well. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like this was the the trend of sort of just flashing the the name on screen. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but the first time for me that I remember it just being like super, super quick was Breaking Bad with it just like, it was like you th- some of them, some, some shows will have like a much longer title sequence with like sort of a theme song or, um, it'll be more than like a few seconds, you know, it will be like a minute yeah. or two. Whereas like there's some of these like dramas and I'm sure there are other ones that have, uh, have done it way before then, but the sort of like the, the Breaking Bad noise, the doom doom, and it was just like, mm-hmm. it would fade onto screen Breaking Bad or whatever. This kind of reminds yeah. me of that sort of shorter. Uh, the one that I think of, you know, and again, I don't know. This is the first one, but uh, Lost. Yeah, true. Because yeah. it would just be if it's that black with the white text, and it would just go like Lost, and, and like it would, fade on. It was yeah. over. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I don't know. Interesting stuff to think about because, like, you know, that that's an intention made by the filmmaker. Like the showrunner is like it's it's gonna fit tonally. Do you know anything about how? Like you said, like how they got that effect. Did you see anything about that? Like how they? No, I didn't. I find it looks like it's like it's like milk and like ink or something. Like it's this really mm. weird liquidy blend, and it comes in in different ways. Like each each intro is like unique in that way. It's not just like yeah. the same one on every right. one, right? And then it has like it fades in for a second. You see the words "The Outsider," and then it's gone. And um, I don't know. I like really that you cool. can see the you can see like the it like starts to go away and you can see it in that sort of hole that's created as it's like fading away it, like sh- yeah. fades into the show. Um, yeah, I don't know if I had to guess it's probably just an effect made in a computer, but really? you know maybe they shot it maybe in some way they did. I just think it would be a lot easier to transition if you could control like the elements of how it's like revealing and stuff. But I wonder, I feel like it'd be hard to get that look just right, but I could be wrong. They can do, you know, they can do some pretty wondrous stuff, but then I'm always surprised when it's like, or I'm not surprised, but like every now and then you hear like, eh, it's just easier to actually do it. And then, <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Like it was, yep. it was way harder to create a simulation when we could just like sp- spill some milk on a table or something. Like, I don't know. Right. <laughs> However they're <Yep>. doing it. <laughs> anyway, let's move into the, uh, into the summary so we can, we can get through these episodes. Um, Cause I have, I have particular things I want to say uh, throughout. Um, and I do have a concern um, that is, that is starting to build and I'm, um, I'm going to wait until I, uh, we get into like the particulars of the episodes. Okay. All right. Let's start with the first episode. It's called Fish in a Barrel. In Cherokee City, Georgia, the mutilated corpse of Frank Peterson, a young boy, is found covered in saliva and human bite marks. Local detective Ralph Anderson quickly identifies strong evidence pointing to a Little League coach, Terry Maitland, including testimony from multiple witnesses and security camera footage. Ralph, whose late son was coached by Terry, is enraged and has him publicly arrested at a Little League game. Terry insists on his innocence, and his wife, Glory, promptly calls their family lawyer, Howard Solomon. 
Alec Pelly, a private investigator hired by Solomon, tracks down evidence that Terry was at an out-of-town conference at the time of the murder, including news footage of Terry speaking at the conference. Both sides are left with extremely decisive but contradictory evidence. Solomon is certain Terry will be vindicated, but Terry is left in jail waiting for the, his arraignment. Meanwhile, the Peterson family disintegrates, with Frank's mother suffering an emotional breakdown that escalates into a heart attack. A hooded figure with a grotesquely deformed face lingers outside the Maitland's house, and Glory finds her younger daughter suffering from apparent nightmares of a man in her room telling her bad things. Yeah, and that's that's where the creepiness really takes off, right? When, when it's not just a, like a, a, a physical presence watching, but something that has the ability to somehow be invisible and 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 like have it so that only one person can see it at a time and like you start to realize that the powers of this thing are maybe even a little more significant than we might have thought yeah i mean the like you said the the first time we see the hooded figure i was like oh man this is gonna be there's gonna be this guy's just gonna be lingering in the background and then eventually it'll be like oh he's got powers and um, but they, they do, like you said, using that one, two punch of sort of having him lingering. It is cool also to like, to like, I, I I'm thinking of specifically the shot where, uh, the father hangs himself and, and the, it comes through the, the camera comes through the window and like reveals that he's like, he like walks over to like the, where the bushes are, the man in the hood walks mm-hmm. over to where the bushes are just to be there for that moment. Well, and it's unclear if he caused it or if he's just if he's just there to witness because right. and that's what's creepy too like I, I the unknown motives of this thing um and the the unknown face i think i think it's really doing it's doing wonders with the idea of like the unknown is always going to be scarier right and you can't make out its face he's uh, he's often kind of out of focus and you know kind of just in the background and then uh unknown motives like what is it doing did it cause the father to commit suicide somehow or was that it? you know what i mean like it's i think we're starting to get some of that i think it's sort of just like the presence of it it maybe brings out some of these things and like you know it's sort of like the grief i think grief is going to be the main thing which we've clearly seen through episode like four and five grief is like the main i would say buzzword for this for this story and the way that grief like it just like destroys families and the way and the the waves that it creates and so i think like in being there it's him like reveling in the sort of grief that the family can't cope with and the guy killing himself is just part of part of it for this creature i yeah i don't know maybe there is like a sort of like psychic influence that's going on there too where he's like do it do it do it because it seems like he is telling, yeah. he's appearing to people and telling them to do things, like the, the little girl. Yeah, and well, and he, he seems to have these like people he can control um, through different different methods that we don't really quite understand yet. And we see that with the, I call him the asshole cop, um, but I don't know what else. To, I forget. Yeah. He has a name, I'm sure. I've just missed it. Um, he uh, he he is in- incredibly unlikable early, and then uh, and then becomes sort of a pawn. For our creature here, I guess I I want I've been kind of thinking of him as the boogeyman. Honestly, that's kind of been a, he gets references that at one point, and that's kind of how I've been thinking of him as, um, or Baba Yaga, <laughs> John Wick. I was gonna say you haven't been thinking of him as as uh, El Coco. <laughs> they keep they keep uh I, I, yeah. It's interesting to me because it's sort of like a Stephen King thing to take that the sort of like cryptid or like the 
the creature or like the urban myth or whatever it is and then and then kind of like with we saw it with the wendigo in in pet cemeteries like you know this culture calls it this and these people call it that and you know it's yeah. this thing that's yeah. every culture has experiences with but calls it something different we definitely saw that um, kind yeah. of trope up here in this in this show which makes it feel kind of true and then he's like it, what if it what if they're all kind of right but it's actually something different and but you know what yeah. i mean so so it creates like a gray area but also establishes some loose parameters right yeah. and then it's not we're not running into the situation where it's like oh vampire um you know what yeah. i mean like where it's like said the, the name vampire said right. or whatever which was something yeah. that we talked about in the book episode yeah and they haven't said it here and and i'm wondering if maybe it was just that i latched onto it and maybe that's just uh maybe it's just a me thing but but yeah i think that that this is probably true for the book too that it is much more of just like this boogeyman um i'll be curious to see though it, it, the difference as i continue with the book yeah do you want to talk about the the actual like arrest scene and like how yeah how that all went down and everything because i felt like uh there's a lot of moving parts with that scene and to like to make it clear to the audience what's going on i think it i think it worked well um and i again to talk about jason bateman's performance i think like right away he does a really good job of kind of making you feel like oh is he guilty because we don't know what's going on but at the same time he's also like pissed off like you can he's just like fuck you for doing this in front of everybody and like as you would be if you were innocent because he doesn't you know you don't want to say anything that's gonna make you seem guilty he's like i want to see my lawyer which kind of makes him seem a little bit guilty um (laughs) just just in doing that because of our legal system so the cops would want us to believe right is actually what you should always say in that situation (laughs) exactly yeah uh but yeah so like sort of like playing both sides of it like i said a lot of moving parts and i think it was executed pretty well yeah and uh the presumed guilt is on full display right like they're 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 filled with this righteous anger at him ralph is is you know sick just disgusted with him as he's sitting by him and uh that's all on display here and i i i wanted to ask you so like we haven't heard much about ralph's son but my memory of the book is that he's not dead he's just like away somewhere yeah i don't know if we've actually gotten the information yet i think they said like he's but he's He's, not he's he's not dead or anything yeah i don't think he's, he's dead and i think it was a really smart decision to make him be dead in yeah. the in the show because it gives ralph this like reason to be so upset about the idea of a child murder beyond why we would all be upset about it right like he's literally sees his own son in this moment and then um and then yeah the idea that this guy could have affected his son's life when he was still alive because he knew him like it really there's a lot there to to show why he is behaving the way he's behaving and i think it really works yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, like, I don't know that we've gotten specifics about how his son died yet in the show. I think right? it was cancer. I think you said cancer oh, okay. at one point. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I remember the scene where he, the, you know, they're, he and his wife are still, Ralph and his wife are still grieving in ways. And I think it's interesting because we talked, I talked about how, like, the grief is clearly, like, the main, the main, I think, focus or moral sort of center of this. Uh, and I think with him grieving still for his son even though like they seemingly have moved on uh and then also the grieving that's going on with all the families who who are losing people and that sort of thing i think there's a lot of more depth there now because you're you're taking a character who just seems like they're like gung-ho for the law sort of thing mm-hmm. like i'm gonna do this because it's the right thing to do and then you're taking making it much more personal so yeah yeah i, I think it was definitely one of my favorite changes and i think it's i i would say it makes him a, a better character well, and it, there's a thematic unity there with the idea of grief being, like we said, the primary 
sort of emotion associated with this show and with this with this creature. And then you, yeah, you have him be a grieving character um, who understands it fully. I think it it uh, it, it it's it was a smart change. Um, so this first episode covered so much ground <laughs> that I was stunned. I was like, this is half at least of what we've read so far. We'd read half the book. I was like, this is at least a quarter of the book, maybe more by the time we finished episode one. And I was like, holy shit, they're blowing through this material. And sh- yeah, by the time episode two was over, I was like, I think we've covered everything we read so far. <laughs> like, I think we- it was basically two episodes worth of stuff and maybe a little bit in episode three. Um, it was, I was stunned at this, like, how fast they were going through the material. And then I was like, there's going to be eight more episodes after this? How is this going to work? Um, so that's something I'm definitely going to be tracking as we move forward because I wonder if there's, they're going to have to, like, they have to slow down. There's just not going to be enough, you know? And I'm going to be curious to see how they make their decisions of, like, what to include, what to add, and and uh, how to how to make this thing fit into 10 episodes. Yeah, I mean, I actually was reading something where Price was talking about sort of his, while he was writing uh, the screenplay for this, he was just flying through it and realizing that, like, you know, after he had, like, three episodes, he realized, like, he was almost all the way through it. And he had like seven more episodes to fill. And basically he said that uh, he felt that the book was so tight and like the tension and the tempo was there and in, in the book was moving so fast that he felt to break that up would be to do a disservice to it. Um, he does go on to say that um, like he didn't really have any qualms about adding and reinventing and creating people that weren't in the book. So that's something that we'll be looking for. I think we've potentially seen a little bit of that already but i'm assuming that there's gonna be more of that going forward uh and he but he he made sure to say like it's definitely stephen king's story it's his characters adding like a new location or adding something else that he feels will you know accentuate some of the story he feels is uh can just make it that much more fascinating um and this brings me to conversations that we've had a lot recently with adaptation uh he had something specific in this variety article called the outsider boss on not being beholden to fans or loyalists for hbo adaptation of stephen king's novel so you want to read that this is where this is from but i find this interesting he said uh, when kind of talked they were kind of talking about big little lies on hbo and how the first season had source material and second season was kind of uh going off of its own thing at that point i think maybe the the writer of the original novel was involved but anyway he was asked about that and he said that if he was asked to do more of the show he would want it to come from the source material again he said quote What's hardest for me is writing an original 10-hour story because my impulse, if I have a really great idea for a big story, I'm going to write a novel. What I love is when I have really good material that someone else figured out for the novel. It's better for me not to have a personal relationship with the material. When I'm adapting my own stuff, it's like I'm a doctor and my appendix bursts and I guess I'll just take it out myself. But really, you should get another doctor. (laughs) I love that analogy. That makes total sense to me. Uh, that's funny. Yeah, no, that's really cool. And I, I love to hear him talking about the adaptation process. Absolutely. And I, so far, I think it's, he's doing a great job. I think, uh, it's, he's found, he's found a good balance for that. Um, yeah. it'll be something to monitor as we go forward. But speaking yeah. of flying through the material, let's, uh, let's get on to episode two. <laughs> All right, here we go. Episode two is called Roanoke, which I want to talk about in a second, mm-hmm. but Rolf meets Terry at the prison and expresses uncertainty about his decision to have Terry arrested. The next day, Joy Joy Peterson, the mother of the victim, dies at the hospital after collapsing at home. 
As Terry arrives at the courthouse for his arraignment, the murdered boy's brother opens fire, fatally wounding Terry before being killed by Ralph. With his dying breath, Terry insists on his innocence. The deformed man is shown watching the aftermath. Fred Peterson, the sole surviving member of the family, attempts suicide by hanging, but is only left comatose. Ralph is put on leave, and hot-headed detective Jack Hoskins is called to fill in. The case continues to gnaw at Ralph, who investigates the van used by the killer and identifies that it was in the same location as the Maitlands during a family trip earlier that year. While questioning a reluctant glory about that trip, Ralph learns from her older daughter that Terry got a small cut on his wrist, supposedly from a male nurse at his father's nursing home. A farmhand discovers a pile of discarded clothes in a barn that match those that Terry was seemingly seen wearing on security footage after the murder. I think it was a bold decision in both the book and to keep it in the show to have uh, Maitland die so early on in the story. Um, it throws yep. you for a loop because you, 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 you're you set up to think he's like one of the main characters, if not the main character of the show. Like, And I think even more so in the book, actually, it's like this is a story about this guy. And then all of a sudden you go, oh, wait, I guess it's not. I guess it's about Ralph. Um, and I think that's what you were picking up on a little bit. I think the show uh, leans in a little bit more to that. Um, to where it feels like there truly is two main characters here and then one of them dies, but we're left with the other one. Whereas in the book, when he dies, it felt like the main character just died. What the hell? And then we start to get more Ralph. But it's almost like Terry has to die first before we really start digging into him. Um, So I'm going to be curious to see how that progresses. But I think it's a bold choice. We talked about risk-taking in the last episode, and I think this is King taking some risks, and I I love to see that the show showrunner took him as well, right? And brought in a big actor like... Like uh, Jason Bateman and then killed him off in episode two. Yeah. yeah. And I think Bateman was probably into it as well. Like to, to have, have the opportunity to, to direct these first two episodes and to sort of play this gray character, seemingly probably good character, but yeah. what we're made to believe is a gray character or a bad character. Uh, I wanted to talk about uh, Jason Bateman's direction because he, in a, another feature ad I was watching, he talked about sort of like... Um, you know this how fun it was to compose that scene the shooting scene because you have multiple camera angles you have you know cameras on dollies you have drones in the air that are also shooting it you have special effects crews there squibbing everything up and everything has to go off perfectly the gun it it went fast first like it was just like regular speed first right and it happened so fast you just see him boom 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 and you get that shock Right. And then it went back and replayed it in slow motion, which is crazy because in order for it, to, in order for continuity to be there, everybody has to move in the same way. So I actually haven't gone back and like watched this, the fast motion and the slow motion versions. But if it's the same continuity and everybody's hands and everything are in the same place and everything, that means they probably shot the whole thing all in one go, which I believe. Yeah. Um, and but just thinking of how technically difficult that would be. Um, and like, you know, the guns aren't actually shooting anything. And when the gun seems like it's been fired, the squib has to go off at the correct timing and mm. everything being coordinated in that way. Like, I didn't even think about, about, yeah, that, that particular challenge that creates. That's interesting. So all of that. And then not to mention the fact that he, because of the slow motion effect, um, having it all kind of match up in terms of continuity is, is something that's, I don't know, that's a, that's a difficult thing to pull off, but I'm sure as he said in the featurette is like 95% just set up prepping everything making sure everything's perfect everybody knows where they're going to be everybody knows what they're doing and then that last five percent is just actually shooting it and like having it all go off hopefully well because resetting a scene like that and doing it all over again would be pretty pretty tough and um i liked the change and to make the identity of the other the shooter a secret until ralph pulls the the mask off essentially yeah because it's almost like there would be some hesitation saw who it was 
Right. Right. You would think from a from a cop, there'd be hesitation in shooting a a kid, even if it has a gun. And he knows. Well, particularly this cop, this version of Ralph and this kid also, because it's like he knows what the kid's been through. Yeah. And in the book, it felt like he made a hard decision in the moment, knew that he had to do it um, and 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 chose to do it. Whereas here he makes the decision without full information. And then without the full information, I think it introduces the regret. Because I think as soon as he sees who it is, he immediately regrets shooting him. And um, I just love the way that's highlighted in, in, I think, one of the next scenes where Ralph is in the hospital and the doctor says, uh, you know, he's just like, anything wrong? Or like, what's, 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 what's bothering you or what's wrong? And he says, I killed a kid. And he says, I mean, with your body. <laughs> um, I, it was like kind of funny, but also just like super dark. I, lo- I love that. Like, because you could just see like that is what's wrong with him. Like, that's what I'm sitting there just thinking about. And he tells the doctor like the doctor's going to be able to help. You know, yeah. it, it, yeah. Was, it was a cool scene. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to talk about the title of the episode, Roanoke. Um, the, mm-hmm. It's talked about how like, you know, the, the I think it's the attorney general. Who is it? The, the DA. It's the DA. The DA, yeah. And he basically just says like, you know, these things have happened over time, you know, Roanoke, the, the whole city mysteries and all these mysteries. And like, he's try- kind of trying to like lean into that sort of mystery thing and just describing it. The fighter jets disappearing and like all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So he's trying to just say like, oh, this is just one of those circumstances. We're right. He killed the kid. Like, let's just move on from it. I- I've, I've learned. A- I've actually watched some videos and stuff about the Roanoke situation. And, and some I think one of the other ones he said, but some of them I didn't know either. So I'm actually curious to go look them up now because I'm sure sh- I'm sure they're all real things. Right. Like, yeah, uh, absolutely. So unexplainable I'm, I'm, stuff. The Bermuda Triangle stuff that people. Yeah. Always talk uh, about. It, well, it adds it adds a sense of like. And, and King does this so well of like, there are all these things that are real that we can't explain. So what if, right? you know, the supernatural yeah. is the result? But I love that they twist that in that scene. Is that what you're getting to? Yeah. So he uses this in a way that's like kind of for his own gain. Like he's trying to say like, look, it's just one of those situations. It's just something that it's happens. It's just one of those situations of a mystery and we'll, never, we'll probably never know. And yet yeah. it's actually going on. <laughs> like a mystery yeah. weird thing is actually going on. Well, and Ralph says, like, that's not going to work for me. Like he said, I think in that scene, he's like, that's, I'm not going to accept that as an answer. Right. Which goes to show, like, sort of what, what we're building to is this this cop who refuses to see any sort of, you know, supernatural things. Like, he's he's 20 yeah. years in the force. Stubbornly and he's like, refusing yeah, he wants evidence. Like. He wants, like, the hard truth and everything. And there's this sort of like creature lingering. As you would be. I feel like when we're watching a show, it's so easy to go like, see what's in front of you. Of course, it's supernatural. But like, personally, if it was me, like I would be the hardest fucking person to convince. I would be, I would be like convincing myself it was a dream. I'd be telling myself I hallucinated. I would be doing all that shit because I I would be so hard to convince that something supernatural happened. Yeah, maybe that's just me. Uh, no, I feel similarly. Like I need, I, I would need the hard evidence for sure. I need to, if I, and even like, then I would try and find a way to discount it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I, I just thought that was cool to, to use Roanoke and then kind of have those sort of like urban myth type things come back up to play. Absolutely. There's a, um, there's a great channel. I, I may have uh, recommended it before. Um, it's called Lemino, L-E-M-I-N-O. Um, and he does, he's like, he, he takes this like skeptics approach to a lot of this stuff where he like breaks down the facts of it. And then he talks about different theories and what he thinks is most likely. Um, he did, he did one about the Roanoke, uh, event and, um, really, really cool stuff. Definitely check it out. Um, I want to highlight another scene. Um, it's the, it's the bunting story. Um, 
And I felt like that scene worked in the book, but shined in the show. Like that's an, that was a situation where a performance can add something to it, right? And I think both, but between Mendelssohn and Bateman, both like they're really added a lot. And I loved the way you know Ralph says, like, "Be careful the next thing you say." And then he he goes, he's like, "You asked me if I touched your son," and he talks about how he taught him all this stuff and how it changed his demeanor and all this stuff. And he says, uh, "I hope I did." You asked basically. if I touched your son, and he yeah. says, "I really hope I did." Or I really hope so, or something like that. And, and I, that's not the exact quote, but something like that, right? And I, I just thought that was so well done. And um, it's one of the last scenes we get um, of, of Maitland before he dies. And uh, yeah, just wanted to give them their props because I think they both nailed that that scene, and it it really works. I think that probably the high, one of the highlights of the season for me, for, for sure. And like you said, like having it be its own scene rather than just I think in the book it, it happened in the cop car on the way to the jail. Um, Either that, or it might have been one of the early. Um, in interviews conversations they had yeah. at the yeah interviews they had yeah. at the police station. Yeah, e- either way, kind of having it linger for longer and then and then having it be the last real conversation they had, I think adds adds some. Yeah, it was in the jail. The it. the the lawyer wasn't there. You know, right. all of that. Let's do episode three if you're ready. Yeah, let's do it. Episode three is Dark Uncle. A disgruntled Jack Hoskins is sent to join the investigation at the barn where the clothing was discovered. After wasting time, he shows up late to the empty barn where he is attacked by an unseen apparition. Over the following days, he develops strange welts on his body and his behavior grows increasingly erratic. Ralph goes to Howie Solomon and Alec Pelly with the information he's gathered on the van and the Maitland's trip to Dayton. They contact eccentric savant investigator Holly Gibney to backtrack Terry's movements during the trip. While attempting to speak to, with Terry's father at the nursing home, Holly discovers that a male nurse at the institution was convicted of murdering two young girls around the time of the visit. The nurse is shown in prison concurrently where he commits suicide to avoid being killed by another inmate. Jessa Maitland convinces Glory to let Ralph visit so she can relay a message, but during the meeting, Glory refuses to let Ralph talk to Jessa. Ralph's wife is able to convince Glory to help with Jessa's nightmare. Jessa expresses to Ralph's wife that the man she is seeing is transforming every time she sees him, and he has a message for Ralph. Stop or something bad will happen. Jessa expresses that Ralph should be the one that is scared. Yeah, I love that. He, he, needs, he needs to come tell me come tell me and she's like i don't think you want that <laughs> yeah it's pretty i mean look if a kid tells you that too and you're like you'd be like oh fuck i shouldn't have said that <laughs> shouldn't have said that uh yeah great stuff um it, it, this is truly like we we are now past where we got in the book right like we had right. just gotten holly introduced in the book and here we're getting a lot more and i think it, this is kind of the thing i was talking about before with how we had like a main character die and then um it shifted focus towards ralph in the book, because there was more of a vacuum created when Terry died, and now we have sort of Holly slash Ralph stepping in, um, I wonder if it's going to feel um, in some ways easier, like an easier transition. Whereas in the show, one of my concerns as much, I, like, I, I actually really like the character of Holly, but it feels very much like Ralph has like taken a sec, like has taken a seat for a few episodes. Yeah. And I, it kind of, I feel like it kind of hurts his storyline a little bit. Like it kind of lets that pressure off. Like he's getting some downtime now, where he's not consumed with this case. And they're they're doing a little bit. They're touching in with him and showing that he still is. But just by screen time alone, you 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 shift your focus a little bit to Holly, 
And because of that, um, I wonder if it's going to hurt his storyline just a little bit. Um, I don't know. And like I said, I do really like the character. She feels like a quintessential Stephen King character. <laughs> I wonder if he's even doing it on purpose at this point. Um, like we, we've talked about, he has this uh, perhaps problematic history of having a person of color being sort of the supernatural helper. Um, and that's exactly what she is. And I wonder if he even is like leaning into it now in some way. I don't know. Um, because she is, she is so obviously that, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I have a couple things like, uh, I didn't really, I didn't really feel, I, I think it was because I was ex- excited to see what Holly was going to do to shake up the show. And I felt like she was the new main character. Like I felt like she was stepping into that role, which I wasn't, I didn't know what to expect, whether she was going to be like a new main character or just like another cog to, that's kind of going to mm-hmm. move the plot forward. She becomes kind of the main character for like the next yeah, three episodes, for right? Two, at least two episodes, yeah. At least two, yeah. Um, she, I, I, I'm interested because it's like you said, she's supernatural, and I get that she's got like abilities, kind of. It seems like she's a savant, but I don't really know. I think she's got the shine. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I could see that. <laughs> well, she, well, there's there, there's a particular moment where her like grandmother caressed her face in a memory she had of being in an MRI machine. Oh, and she was remembering it, yeah. Yeah, so it it seems like she's got the shine in a certain way. It's just it's a certain way. It's different than everyone else we've encountered, right? And then she does have this sort of savant uh, mind that is 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 reminiscent of stuff you hear about for real. But then there's also a supernatural element to it of like. I know every lyric to every rock song written after this year, but I don't listen to music. Then you're like, okay, well, how did you learn that? Because even if you're like really, really good at holding on to information, you still have to be presented with it in the first place. And if she was never presented with it, I just assume she like read it or something. Right, you assume that, but she doesn't say that. She says, "I don't listen to music," implying like I don't know how I know this. So it, to me, there seems like there's some supernatural stuff going on there. I mean, she's definitely like, at least at the very least, some sort of like experiments were done on her and like all this. She's had some trauma for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's definitely like shaped. She's the, kind of a psychic, it seems like to me. But do you want to talk about the scene in the barn? Because that was the scene that I was talking about where I was like, I'm by myself right now. <laughs> yeah, that was creepy. And I love to see. So this Jack character, I guess that's the asshole cop's name. Um, I, I knew what they were doing with him. I'm like, they're setting him up to be this super like tough guy, getting in fights. Like, I'm not afraid of anything. I, I'm going to walk into a strip club and just like lord over them. The fact that I'm a cop and they can't touch me kind of right. thing. Yep. And um, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to be interested to see how this guy reacts when he comes face to face with something beyond him. And I would that delivered. It was great. You know what I mean? Like, he was terrified. I could feel his terror. Um, and for the most part, it's been solid since then. Um, again, I'm wondering, like, I'm worried about the pacing of the show yeah. a little bit. Yeah. I'm worried that we're going to get, things are going to get a little stretched thin here in the middle. Um, and it certainly hasn't happened yet for me, but I'm, I, I, there's enough of it there to where I'm a little worried. And then I'm hopeful that if you, even if you do have that, as long as you can like nail the ending, then your overall feeling of the show is going to be so positive that it's not going to matter. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I don't know. I just—it's just a worry. I'm—I'm I'm, I'm having a little bit. Yeah, I agree. I felt a little bit of that, and I could tell that they were like kind of biding their time and and yeah. like sp- spinning their wheels a little bit in in terms of like lingering here, visiting this character. What's this character up to? Where it's like I don't know if they're going to do that in the book. Um, and specifically, they're just like going in like on whatever she went to like New York. I think that's the next episode. Mm-hmm. But like she goes to New York and like um, goes down this whole rabbit hole that kind of just leads her back where she was. They actually lampshade that too. They're, they're like, oh yeah, she uh, 
you know, that's how it goes in an investigation. You go from point yeah. A to point B that leads you back to point A. You've seen an investigative movie, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. I, it just seemed like they were definitely biding their time. But like you said, it hasn't really been affecting me so far. I've kind of been like fascinated by the changes, like trying to see like what they were going to, how they were going to change things and what they were going to do. Uh, but to talk about episode three specifically, um, mm-hmm. this sort of uh, information that she gets, like the, the dark uncle, she's like very open to, I feel like the supernatural as well. So she's starting to like get hints that it might be supernatural. And I think we as the audience are supposed to follow along with that. I like the way it's it's described too, because she's, she's like a hyper-rational person, yet she still believes in the possibility of the supernatural. And that reminds yeah. me of like my own religious beliefs where I consider myself an agnostic and not an atheist because there are unknown, unknowable things. And that seems to be the root of it for her. She's like, I'm not going to definitively say that a doppelganger doesn't exist because I don't know that for sure. So I'm going to le- I'm going to say if. And, you know, I really like that. Uh, the way that you can have this like hyper intelligent, rational character who still entertains the idea of the supernatural, which kind of gives us permission too, as well. Right. As viewers, which is cool. All right. So moving on to episode four, it's called Que Vine El Coco. Holly's investigation in Dayton uncovers a pattern. Individuals in different cities across the country who are accused of murdering children with decisive forensic evidence incriminating them despite strong alibis and a series of suicides and revenge kills in the families of of both the victims and the accused in the aftermath of the crime, suggesting one killer who becomes a perfect doppelganger of various unassuming targets. In each case, the doppelganger who committed the murder scratches a stranger before apparently assuming their form and repeating the pattern in this new target city. Terry is the latest target of this being, with the nurse, Heath Hofstetter, preceding him in Dayton, in turn preceded by a woman named Maria Canelles in Harlem. A woman in Harlem explains her belief to Holly that the perpetrator is a supernatural boogeyman who feeds on the suffering of its victims and their families. An increasingly erratic Jack leaves a stockpile of dead animals and furniture in the woods for the entity he is communicating with. Ralph identifies on security footage that local bouncer Claude Bolton was scratched on his wrist by Terry Maitland's doppelganger the night of the murder. The boy who carjacked the van comes forward, admitting to Ralph that he saw a man take the parked van in Dayton, but he was afraid to mention him before. He draws a picture of the man he saw, bearing a clear resemblance to the hooded deformed figure seen around crime scenes in Cherokee City. The investigation leading to, like we, we talked about, sort of it sort of setting parameters for like what this thing could be. Um, for the most part, I liked it. I did find it to be maybe a little much, right? Like right. this, yeah, this character who is like, hey, I'm here and I've got all the info and I'm going to lay it all out for you. Yeah. Um, it was maybe a little much. I, I, like It was kind of spoon fed to her in a way that felt a little weird. Um, but overall, I think the effect is still a good one. So much information in one sitting, I think, felt like it was just like, and here's what it is. And this like is exactly it made the character who was talking to her not feel like a real person. Right. Like yeah. you are you are you are a vehicle for exposition and for explanation is what right. you are. And then we get the sort of I do like the sort of uh, Holly in the bath, like looking looking at the the um, the creatures and researching and that kind of thing. And then when she went under. Yeah, that was a cool sequence. And, I, and, and she is like actively looking for it herself. She's not being spoon fed it, which which I right. really liked. Yeah. There's another character that gets introduced somewhere around here that I want to talk about a little bit. And uh, he has the strength t- of 10 because his heart is pure. Um, <laughs> yeah. this, this, this guy, uh, I want to know, I'm curious, do you trust this guy? Because I, 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 I keep going back and forth of like, is he for real or is he, is he the doppelganger? And he's just like really good at fooling people. 
because we've yeah, seen evidence sure. that of the doppelganger like had sex with that guy and convinced him enough right to sleep with him mm-hmm. in order to scratch his back the other guy uh so if he's capable of this sort of thing or it's capable of this sort of thing and it would be a crazy twist to have this this like likable guy be that but on the other hand that feels kind of like a different story than what we're getting here i don't know and like i can't decide where they're going with it and whether or not i actually trust this guy i will say it makes sense because like ralph was told to stop his investigation like it was clearly aware of ralph's investigation so if we're to believe that maybe we would know maybe it would know that holly was also investigating it so it would start to like key in on her and be like quit your investigation and maybe start to scare her off the case well yeah or just want to be just want to like track her and see what she's what she actually is doing and maybe it's really maybe it's fascinated with her because of her sort of supernatural powers um that i don't know i guess that I kind of feel like that might be where they're going, but I almost don't want to be, that to be true because I do kind of like this guy. <laughs> yeah. um, and I kind of like the idea of, of him being genuine, but, you know, just with the kind of story it is, and maybe he's not, I don't know, we'll be curious to see. Um, not a spoiler, I haven't watched on or anything. This is just me speculating. Right. I wonder if he's even a book character, if he's yeah. completely fabricated for the show also. That's, that's something I keep thinking about. Like, does this feel show or does this feel like it's also in the book? Um and I've been thinking about that a lot, actually. So there's also a sequence in the... I think it's in this episode with um, with Ralph's wife when she gets menaced by the by the thing. And we talked about, like, she wakes up and she she sees it in her... Um, she's in, like, a kitchen. She turns around and he's in the living room. And then she drops the glass and then she steps on it to walk over right. without even, like, noticing. Almost in, like, a trance, yeah. Almost in a trance. And, like, that whole sequence is so terrifying. I don't know. Like, that was such an affecting affecting sequence for me definitely well it, it was just brought it so close to home for ralph too and he's yeah, like unaware of it in his house and she she he could like she is so terrified to her core and then have him not believe her and say like you just had a bad dream um much like the daughter i don't know it just really effective i think it was also kind of like bookended by the um the sequence in the uh, in in her waiting room where she she kept thinking she saw this hooded figure and then maybe she did at one point but then it was it ended up a sleeping guy, um yeah I don't know it just well done well crafted how about how about the scene with Jack like bringing all that shit into the woods and like freaking out and yelling and stuff like it's weird right what's going on yeah here? definitely weird why why is he bringing lamps and things like eating or something I don't know we'll have to find out I guess yeah. Um, and then, and then everything, everything, and we might be getting into the fifth episode. I actually don't know, but, um, everything with Jack at the, at the, the pregnant cop's house. Oh yeah. That's, that's, that's later. Let, let me just read that and then we'll just get into the whole rest kind of. Yeah. Okay. Cause I have, I have some more, but yeah, let's do that. So episode five is tear drinker in Cherokee city. The hooded figure appears to Ralph's wife, Jeannie relaying a warning to Ralph that they will both be killed. If he continues his investigation, Ralph brushes this off as a nightmare of Jeannie's but is unsettled when her drawing of the intruder is extremely similar to the boy's drawing of the man who took the van. In Dayton, Holly theorizes about the shape-shifting creature killing children and visits the cemeteries of both Heath Hofstetter and his alleged victims, finding dilapidated buildings nearby and and photographing them, believing that the creature would live in these buildings to feed on the suffering of those visiting the graves. She also meets a man associated with Heath who later commits suicide by cop and is shown to have the same sores on his neck as Jack. Holly suggests Ralph takes photographs of Terry's grave and Ralph's partner Eunice Salbo notices that the barn where the clothes were found is right by the cemetery. 
Holly opts to drive back to Cherokee City to debrief Ralph, Howie, and Alec. The night before, she invites Andy Katkovich, a Dayton security officer with whom she had a courtship, up to her room. Holly leaves the next morning, but her ca- but her car breaks down on the way out of Dayton. Andy finds her notes on the investigation and researches them. Continually, continually terrorized by the unseen entity, Jack offers to help Ralph with his case. Yeah, which seems yeah, not nothing good is going to come of that. Yeah, um, <laughs> is that 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 could have potentially just been the doppelganger right there trying to get in on the investigation? I I think it's I think it's com- it's given him some sort of um, instruction to get involved in the investigation so that he can affect it in some negative way. Because he's like, I'll do anything kind of thing. He was like freaking out saying he'd do anything. But if you want to jump back to some of the stuff from four, episode four, we can kind of blend these together. Because I know you said you had some other stuff. Yeah, so I don't even know which episode it was, but the whole sequence with the the party for the the woman police officer who's had the baby and and that whole sequence and then it leads to the dream where she wakes up and she walks into the room with her gun and she's like all scared and then she sees this figure standing over the crib yet she's like paralyzed with fear and can't do can't act and yeah. then she wakes up and has to, and like goes back and sees the empty it's so good man that was a tense scene that that was so effective yeah i actually am still of the opinion like that actually happened because everything that we've been seeing i think in the dreams per se have actually been happening but people will wake up as if they didn't so i think that actually happened she woke up saw that the baby was being held by the thing and then went back to sleep woke up freaked out and then found out her husband was actually holding it right cuz well. he, he put he put it put it back right but yeah 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 no i think you're right man and that's that's scary to think about right like it, that it actually did that um i want to i want to highlight some stuff that i feel like we've we've kind of missed on um so far and that, one of them is um Terry's wife, Marcy, um, she, I think she's giving a lot of really good, really good performances. A lot of the stuff with the, um, the, the drama surrounding the children and the way that the community has ganged up on her. There's a sequence where she goes to a restaurant and is, you know, menaced by this guy over like leaving her children alone at home. And, uh, all of that is just so affecting the fact that she has to withdraw her kids from school because they're getting picked on. I don't know. Just that all that all really works. I think just to, just to jump in here, I think in the show her name is Glory. Okay, but it's it is Marcy in the book, right? It's Marcy in the book, I believe. Okay, yeah. that's why I got mixed up. So yeah, Glory is the character, but yeah, it's it's. I mean, because that, that's and then you know she's thinking about like even if we move, it's gonna follow us, and and like you know it's like a tattoo on her face kind of thing. I think she says. Yeah, and the only way to get out from under it is to get exonerated, and even that. I'm, you know, sorry to say is not going to be perfect because there are many people who will believe that it was false or something. You know, the the exoneration isn't true, but that would go a long way. And so in some sense, that adds a big sense of urgency to Ralph's investigation. Like, yeah, maybe the case is quote unquote closed, but you have to prove he didn't do it is is so important to their lives um, and their ongoing suffering associated with this. I wanted to compare for a moment this creature to some other king creatures right and we you talked about the wendigo a little bit which was maybe our most lovecraftian feeling entity entity we've encountered so far um maybe the overlook i I don't i don't know i mean kind of it depends it depends because Um, you got penny what do you mean by lovecraftian there's lots of things you could ask but yeah um literally pennywise um spoiler for spoiler for it is sort of a lovecraftian style like elder god (laughs) it feels like um but one of the things I think is really interesting for this is that Pennywise is a creature that feeds on fear, mm-hmm. and this is a creature that seems to feed on grief. 
and that distinction. Right. And what do we determine that? What do we determine that it was from from the Wendigo from Pet Cemetery? I feel like there was something because it's it's like the fear, it's like the loss or something. It's very similar to grief. I feel like. Yeah, you're right. You know, and and I think you're right. You know, I wish I could remember exactly. Yeah, it is something like that. Um, I don't know if it was said to feed on it or not. I, I honestly, I have to revisit. Um, but I think the two that I kept drawing the comparisons to was between Pennywise and this, and how Pennywise is a, is a, is an entity designed to elicit fear so that it can feed on that fear. Mm-hmm. This is an entity designed to elicit grief, and so it's the things it's doing is to maximize the grief felt by everyone affected, and. That to me is more terrifying <laughs> because God, like I don't know, like if I if I had to face one creature, I you know it's like I it'd be easier to overcome fear than to overcome just soul crushing grief, right? Like that is I don't know, it's 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 pretty it's pretty dark. I mean, I agree. It's it's also interesting though because like fear could be fear of grief, you know. So sure. it's like the fear of losing someone, the fear of having someone die, and then you're grieving. So it's like, but but, all... but fear is the fear of something yet to happen, whereas grief is the feeling about something that has happened. That's true. Yeah, you know what I yeah. mean. And and I'm not saying that Pennywise doesn't cause lots of grief. He does. Um, it does. Uh, <laughs> but but th- this this being, I don't know. Like I, I'm not saying it's more powerful or anything. In fact, I I don't think it is. But it is uh it is affecting in a way that um even Pennywise didn't do. You really pulled me down a rabbit hole here and now I'm like thinking like the creature from from The Shining is like kind of kind of lingering on sort of that like cycle Entity. of abuse stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like the like the I don't know, it's sort of like what people will do uh like the the demons that people hold on to, I guess kind of. Mm. I don't know. And like, I don't know how it exacerbates that, but it is kind of like in the same realm of things. I feel like we're really starting to get into where we can see like these creatures. This is all like, you know, the universe is starting to feel Stephen King's universe is starting to feel more fleshed out for me. Like, I feel like I can see like they're all of a certain type of thing. Seemingly, you know, all of the stories might be very different, but these like these entities that pop up in a lot of them seem to be have like some similarities. So like maybe they're all of the same, you know, family or whatever yeah and you know what's interesting is i feel like the more we put names to this stuff the it kind of takes away some of the mystique i agree and so yeah. i, I yeah. wonder if he like that's something he has to deal with because the more he defines his universe and the nature of what is in it right it makes it ever so slightly less scary what i have to assume know? though is that dark tower just takes it and then introduces all kinds of new questions about it you know what i mean mm-hmm. takes it and maybe answers some of where these people or the creatures or whatever entities come from or what like what their motivations are or whatever but at the same time introducing all kinds of different other mysteries that are associated with them because otherwise because i think from what i understand the books the dark tower books people look on very like like fondly people are like oh yeah dark tower is some of his best we stuff sh- in full disclosure neither of us have read them so we don't right. know <laughs> so so yeah. i don't know interesting to think about uh yeah, whether sure. or not he you know it, whether it's because he, he's providing answers or because he's providing new questions why people yeah. like it you know that is that is like what i've heard too that it that it kind of takes all of his other kind of like multiverse stuff and or macroverse i forget what he calls it and kind of unifies it in a way um if anyone will would let us know i'd be curious to know who has read all those books do you think it takes away any of the fear feeling like you understand it more because of that 
or does it add to it in some way? I, I would be curious to know without spoiling it because we, you know, I mean, we may end up covering some Dark Tower stuff. So, but yeah, just I'd be curious to know general thoughts on that, like big Stephen King fans out there. Um, so circling back around to the show, I, I'm really enjoying this thing. I' curious about where it's going. Um, I I am eager to see how Holly and Ralph how their storylines converge. Um, now that they're sort of going to be in the same physical location and maybe right. some of my worries about, about their two storylines detracting from one another a little bit will be solved by bringing them together. Um, I don't know. I'm just really curious to see where it's going to go. I also don't know what this creature is like, like, what is it doing? Um, I, I'm curious to know if you have any thoughts about that. So, so yeah, it scratched the bouncer. So it seems clear to me that the bouncer is probably going to be the next doppelganger. But it also has this other guy that it's controlling. It seems to not want Ralph to investigate it, yet it's not taking a lot of direct action against him. It's a lot more of, like, threatening people around him. Um, Will we see it start to do more of that? Um, What will that look like? And then same thing with Holly. Like, she's not being directly menaced very much yet. And at some point, I assume will be. And um, yeah, I'm just curious, like, is are we ever going to get a reason for like why the patients or why is it threatened by Holly in some way because of her maybe power? I don't know. For one, I'm excited to see Holly and, and Ralph come back together because of what I talked about earlier, the sort of the way that he's like completely fully against Supernatural. And he it's said in the show, like, oh, I refuse to believe anything Supernatural. She's like, well, you're going to hate me or whatever. You're not going to. Yeah. You're not going to like acknowledge me. But you're not going to like what I have I to am. say. Yeah. Yeah. So pushing them back together, her with the evidence that she's going to be bringing very supernatural stuff and, and that, like, tr- sort of trying to convince a cop who, who you know, will refuse it a lot uh, is going to be interesting, to say the least. And then I think the stuff that we're going to get, with, first of all, the creature has a very interesting understanding of the legal system, I think, because it's, it's a good job of, of doing things that make people s- incriminate them oh, and yeah. then also and then also making sure that their alibi is questionable and like you know sort of like it's just interesting because it's, it seemingly understands like how people will be perceived well it makes sure to be seen right like we've seen several times where it's like it's doing deliberate things to make sure that the police are aware of who it is right it knows what cameras are and stuff so it like yeah. turns the cameras it so it's like interesting that, yeah. understanding of of sort of the legal system like i said so something i've been thinking about like damn this like entity whatever it is might actually like have like research some law books or something yes yeah, i mean it's really it's really smart in a way that that is different than some other uh, creatures who are maybe more primal primal exactly yeah. that's a good word for it whereas this is like no it understands how our society is and how people are perceived and and like right yeah all of that really works it, it knows how to drive families to kill themselves and to tear themselves apart um and has done it multiple times yeah but looking forward, I'm excited to to you know read the rest of this story first for myself to to watch the rest of the show and then read the rest of the story. Um, yeah. The last episode's coming out very soon. Uh, I'm excited about that. And so next week, like we said, we're going to cover the second half of the book and the second half of the show. Cover all that in one episode. Um, you know, yeah. talk about the differences. Talk about sort of the ways that they're the same and and just our reactions to how we how we uh, first viewed it. Yeah, and how this adaptation, uh, whether it works or whether it uh, elevates or whether it 
transforms and all of that. Um, definitely come back next week. And, and uh, you know, I, we'd be curious to hear from you guys, too. Um, how are you finding this adaptation? Have you read the book? Are you just watching the show? Um, what's your thoughts on, on what, you know, our, our takes on it as book readers? All of that. We'd be curious to hear from you. Either comment on our social media posts or send us an email to inktofilm at gmail.com. Um, we're always excited to hear from from listeners. Yep. And those social media accounts are in, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at inktofilm. Uh, and be sure to join our Council of Inklings because we post polls in there. We post adaptation news, anything that we see that could potentially be a project in the future. We make sure to uh, kind of engage with in there. Absolutely. And if you actually enjoyed this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever podcast app you use. Um, it really helps us get the word out and get this, uh, get our show uh, more discoverability, more people to know about it. Um, that's one of our, our key challenges, I think, in and growing is, is just getting the word out. So anything you can do to help us with that would be greatly appreciated. Yeah. And if you, if you did want to help us continue the podcast, you can check out our Patreon. We're patreon.com forward slash ink to film. Uh, we have many tiers in there, but we do our bonus episodes monthly. We have our 10, a $10 patron level where we have merch that we send out and Mm -hmm. our $25 patron level where we have, you literally have the ability to help us choose our projects going forward you can use your tokens towards different projects and uh, I find I found it to be a really cool way for people to engage with us and get us to read some stuff we, we weren't necessarily thinking we would yeah we got some of those coming up here soon I, I think in the next few months we're gonna have more more of these uh, patron commissioned projects coming up um, but yeah this is a this is a project that I am loving the hell out of it's scaring me it's making me hard to sleep at night sometimes um, and I love it you know that's how that's what I want for my horror so yeah uh, I'm looking forward to finishing this thing out uh, we hope you join us uh, for that next week uh, we wanted to thank Ross Bugden for use of our intro and outro music is there anything else I'm forgetting that's it all right well until next time thanks for listening <laughs>